subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. WeCharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. WeCharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by ReCharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with ReCharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up, DTC Bod? Uh, today we're joined by Shireen Aubert, who is Director of Growth at Bobby, one of the fastest growing baby formula companies in the world. So without any further ado, Shireen, why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit about yourself um, and what you guys are up to at Bobby. Awesome. I mean, you nailed it. I don't even know what to say after that. We should just consider this podcast done. <laughs> no, but um, I, I'm Shireen. I had growth at Bobby. Um, we launched in January 2021. And 18 months post-launch, we just announced that we're coming into uh, Target. Super excited. Um, and you might have heard the news or you might be living under a rock. There's been a national infant formula shortage um, over the past several months. So not only have we been experiencing astronomical growth, but we have been in an industry that is short supply and high demand, which added even more fuel to our growth. So really interesting times as a growth marketer. So why don't you give us a little context, Shireen, about what's going on? Why is there a shortage? Um, you know, what's what's at stake here? What are the causes behind it? And, um, you know, how have you guys been kind of coping in this environment? Yeah, back in February, one of the two largest infant formula manufacturers in the U.S. experienced a recall. Um, they weren't following protocols. There was a bacteria called Coronabacter found in their plants and in their formula. Um, unfortunately, babies were harmed, which is the worst possible outcome, you know, when you're in this business. So they, um, along with the FDA, instituted a recall and shut down that plant. Um, that brand, Abbott, was providing about 40% of the supply in the market. So essentially overnight um, and over the course of the next several months, 40% of the supply, about 30 to 40% was taken off the market and every other brand in the industry received that rush of demand. So this is what's, what has led to a nationwide shortage. There are few players in the space had this light bulb moment when you do an Amazon search for baby formula, there's like a hundred and, you know, less than 150 results. If you do a search for area rug, there's like 50,000 results. So most categories have hundreds of thousands to some, sometimes even millions of results that exemplifies what is happening on in an industry. There's not enough options. There's not enough competitors. Um, and so recently in the last month or so, the White House announced Operation Fly Formula. They're bringing formula in from other countries. Um, and that to us is 
more competition, which is amazing for the industry. But as a business, we want to remain competitive. So our challenge now is how do we remain competitive while being in this moment of having a wait list up, having more demand than we have supply in the entire market um, and remaining a D2C challenger brand. One question that I had uh, in regards to that is you were talking about how the landscape before the White House came in and started wanting to import a bunch of formula. You, you said it was one of these interesting markets where you could go to Amazon, you could search baby formula, and there just weren't that many options compared to other products, right? So obviously, when you're starting a company, you're l- trying to look for these opportunities where there's white space and you, you can actually disrupt and be competitive. Um, what was it that led the company in that direction uh, in the first place? And I don't know if as a growth marketer, um, how you would think about like if you were starting a brand, how you would identify opportunities like that for disruption? That is such a good question. This is one of the industries that is such a high barrier to entry. To bring an infant formula to market is so damn hard. Like there are so many regulations. It's hard to manufacture. It's, it's just really hard. And others have tried it and have failed. Um, but the market was in so desperate need for a premium formula like Bobby um, to get to, to paint the picture before Bobby launched. There were a lot of parents. I mean, it's really hard to measure how many who were importing formula from Europe, importing it from Germany, purchasing it from black market websites which is really dangerous because it's not regulated by the FDA. You don't know how the formula is getting there. You don't know if it's been sitting on a dock in, you know, 100 degree weather for months at a time. And you don't really know who's behind this operation. And if there's a recall overseas, parents don't really know and um, aren't, you know, kept up to date. The, the measurements on the back. So there, there's this really painful experience that parents were going through to get infant formula that meets European standards because they have higher levels of DHA. They have um, more strict requirements around what's allowed. um, And they, you know, a lot of those uh, infant formulas don't use corn syrup, whereas American formulas do. So our founders were mothers and they were experiencing this pain themselves of not having an option on the market that they would feel comfortable feeding themselves, let alone their babies. So that's where the idea for Bobby was born. Just true gap in the market. And no one with the balls to actually like do it. No one with the, 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 for us, like the, the fierceness of um, a disappointed mother. So our founders come from Airbnb. Um, they saw an opportunity and they saw a need. And the I would say like one of the biggest things that has been pushing our growth so far forward has been just the incredible product market fit, like incredible white space opportunity, incredible desire. On top of that, an incredible brand like infant formula is very has a lot of stigma around it. You know, the saying breast is best. There's a lot of people who actually can't breastfeed and are being met with the shame about being told that they're not giving the best to their baby. And when they, you know, physically can't um, or there's, you know, there's so many other reasons or, or maybe it's not the best option for their family. So on top of, 
incredible product market fit. It's building a brand that makes people feel accepted for making the best decision for their children, which also didn't exist on the market. What is it that is so challenging about bringing one of these to market? I was not expecting um, Airbnb to be, you know, the the unique advantage for for an attribute for bringing it to market. So, you know, is it is it on the regulation front? Is it, you know, on the on the formula side? What are the biggest challenges to bringing this to market from scratch? Yeah, you. I mean, you can't mess up. Like we're seeing what happens when you mess up. It it causes infant deaths and it is really high stakes. Um, but on top of that, it's the science that goes into per, like actually creating a formulation um, and the rigorous testing and manufacturing and safety and everything that goes into production um, and the whole FDA approval process. So it's like not only do you have to create the formulation you have to get it produced and then you have to get it approved and you have to get it tested. Um, and so we work with one of the most reputable infant formula manufacturers, um, Perigo. They supply a lot of the store brands and we, you know, worked with scientists to, to produce um, our proprietary formula in partnership with them. Um, it, 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 it takes investment, time, and knowledge, spe specialized knowledge. So it's not as easy as, you know, starting like a dropship business or like importing a product from overseas to sell direct to consumer. It, it takes a lot. And what's the, so what's, how long did that process take from ideation of the founders to, you know, having the first baby consume um, some of the formula? And, and also just to add to that, Ramon, did, did you guys launch and start D2C or what, what was the like kind of like Ramon said, what were the early stages of iterating on product and how did you take it to market? Now, that's a good question. Some of the history I'm a little, little fuzzy on, but I believe Laura and Sarah, the, the co-founders started years before we officially launched and started selling in, in 2021. So um, it originally had started with them going overseas to produce the formula. Um, and you might have to edit some of this out because my memory is a little fuzzy. Um, but they w went through a few different channels before arriving at and having establishing a, you know, manufacturing partnership, um, and it took a few years to actually bring the product to market. Gotcha. And just for context, um, you know, at your at your current scale, right? Like, how big is your team? Like, how many people are involved? I know you guys are moving really fast. And and at what point in the journey um, did they bring you on as director of growth? We're about, I would say, seventy employees, um, and this is a little over a year and a half into you know being live i was brought on um september 2021 so i've been here less than a year um and when i was brought on the business was outpacing all expectations um to the point where last year 
we had to enable a wait list because de demand was so much higher than what we had forecasted we were going to do in our first year. Um, unrelated to any kind of uh, formula shortage, but we had gotten one rep under our belt for have, turning on a wait list and um, being too hot for the market. So we, we had a lot of organic word of mouth um, growth that we were able to, once I joined Builds, um, a paid acquisition framework on top of that allowed us to scale um, sustainably. So let's go into that because this is like the greatest problem to have, right? Where demand outpaces supply. But for a lot of brands like what you're saying, you're also racing up against the clock. You're competing for market share. Um, you're trying to move quickly in a market where there's clearly a lot of opportunity. So as a director of growth, how do you think about um, in this type of environment where it's all about operations, manufacturing and being able to meet the, the demand that you're currently doing it? How do you think about day to day, what's the strategy there once um, you're in that phase of, you know, rocket ship explosive sort of growth? I think it has to transition at some point from a we're hitting today's numbers to we need to hit like next year and the year after's numbers and it becomes more of a long game and it becomes more of cementing your brand into the minds of consumers so that you can be recalled by them when they're ready to make a purchasing decision. And there's no, you know, there's no other purchase that is, it's, it's, it's the least impulsive purchase you can make is infant formula. You know, you actually need to have an infant and you actually need to feed it formula. <laughs> and uh, uh, there's only a short window of time in an infant's life where it consumes formula. It's the first 12 months. So for us, it's really like so much different than D2C acquisition in other industries. Like so many purchases are impulse purchases and there's ways that you can incentivize and motivate someone to purchase. Um, so much of our purchasing journey revolves around research. I mean, it's a high AOV product. It's high stakes. You need to know what's in it. So when we think about growth, we think about educating people around why this option is the right option for them. And then we meet them in all the channels where they're doing their research, understanding that there's going to be multiple touch points in making this, this purchasing decision. Um, so I would say like, that's like the shorter term view on our growth and the longer term view on our growth is how do we get as many people to understand who we are as possible as, as soon as possible. Um, and, at the highest volume possible. I think it's super interesting. The fact of people having to plan out ahead of time um, makes total sense. Like, hey, if I'm gonna have a baby in six months and there is a formula shortage right now, um, you know, I might start looking into this, potentially buying inventory. What's a shelf life of formula? Clearly, I uh, don't have a kid uh, or, or don't have one coming in six months or anytime soon. So um, what, what's a shelf life for this? Yeah, it's, it's about two years and I can't speak with specificity for every brand. But one thing that's really interesting about Infant Formula 2 is because there's so much education around why you should breastfeed, there's a stat where like 83% of parents think that they're going to breastfeed and that um, I believe it's like 60% turn to formula within the first few months. 
So there's a huge mismatch in expectation and reality. Um, and I think that that presents a massive opportunity to do more education earlier. And what we're seeing now in this time where the infant formula shortage, like there was a period where it was one of the most talked about things, we're seeing that more pregnant people are making infant formula purchasing decisions or doing purchasing research that weren't before. A little bit due to like the economics and the scarcity and the whole environment, but I think there is a cultural shift happening where people are becoming more exposed to the fact that this is a this is a possibility. Whereas before it was just we're just going to hope for the best and then formula is like the worst possible option. I think we've I, I want to pat ourselves on the back for shifting the culture a little bit there. And Shireen, I think the other interesting thing you mentioned um, was kind of about your product in particular. It's something that can only be consumed in the first year. So education is such an important component of it. It's not something that, you know, like me personally, Ramon, we're not your target market, maybe down the line, but like right now, we're not going to, there's just no chance we're going to buy baby formula because we don't have a usage for it. But, um, you know, the question that I'd have is, as you think about all these different channels, because you have a very specific type of audience and a very specific type of buyer, clearly education is on top of mind, but like, what are some of the channels that you're really focused on to bring this educational content um, to market? Is it, are you guys, you know, working with, um, parenting communities? Are you looking for more like mass appeal? Like what are some of the partnerships and channels that you use to foster this knowledge and awareness of, of your brand? I also want to talk about milk drunk along those lines. Yes, definitely. I mean, performance content is a big one that I feel like doesn't get as much attention as it should, but for a high research um, product like SEO, we have a, a content site called milk drunk. Our goal there is to dominate on all the top um, top of funnel, mid funnel, and high intent search queries around baby feeding, um, but also review sites, third party sponsored content has been awesome for us. You, like if you want to get into the attribution debate, this is where like it's a big black box. You can't really truly measure the impact of performance content. Um, you can, I guess, from a last click standpoint, but it, it doesn't really tell the full story when you have high AOV, high research intensive product. Aside from that, um, we have like a whole arm of the business dedicated to medical and like science. And so the medical community is a big, I guess you could look at it as like an influencer in the purchasing decision. We also work with a lot of influencers and celebrities for just like awareness. Um, and then retail, our retail strategy is, I would say, a bigger awareness play than it is an actual sales play. And so performance content means just putting out dollars behind educational content? Yeah, whether it's having a, I guess you could think of it as like, influencers but bloggers or or content um publications and authorities in the space that can write about your product and do you know unbiased research we do a lot of unbiased um research because we can't be biased it's regulatory 
constraints restrict us from being biased. So it's just working with publications to get the information out there because a lot of parents do research on Reddit and by talking to each other. So it's like kind of filling that gap in the research that exists. Got it. And then uh, the the milk drunk is what I find super interesting. So a lot of this content is written here, right? So um, you have milk drunk and then the reviews that you mentioned review sites is that's not milk drunk. That is just, you know, what are some examples of some of these review sites? Is it like Trustpilot and things like that? So we use milk drunk as a way to kind of take two spots on um, search results. So we have our main e-com site, Hi Bobby, and then we have Milk Drunk. Um, then we work with other publications like The Every Mom or um, The Quality Edit or other um, blogs and media sites to write. Like they will write um, their first person testimonial or review um, we've done a lot of testing with that and, and our goal is really to just dominate the queries when someone is doing research. The, I mean, you know, crushing SEO like that with word of mouth and um, the tailwinds of, of the market, uh, adding another layer of ad spend and PPC, um, you know, you've got all channels on at full steam. So is there, do you guys have to play with the ad spend um, to where, you know, hey, supply just isn't there or has your um, infrastructure and supply capabilities just uh, caught up to the point that you can just continue to be full steam on on all channels. And then again, you know, you have the component of the other market entrance. There's no room to slow down type of situation. Totally. That's the biggest uh, puzzle that I've probably faced in my career is how do you do all of that and, you know, remain competitive? Um, but back in February, once we noticed our demand was so far outpacing our targets, we slowly peeled back everything that was driving direct response acquisition. So we turned off advertising. We turned off a lot of our retention marketing. Um, we stopped all promotions um, and we kind of just kept the brand marketing engine going. And at the height of um, the crisis, we were involved in a lot of media and press. And I will say like for, for the growth marketers out there, media is such a massive growth channel that, you know, PR and media, it, it, I feel like it's a little bit underrated by uh, growth marketers, but it you can get spikes in traffic that you will never see with paid advertising. Um, but we really, we really have been quiet on all direct response, you know, marketing channels, um, and have focused our efforts in, you know, brand marketing, storytelling, being a voice in the moment without driving to, you know, direct sales. So it is, it is like a challenge, but it's interesting. We have some targets around like, share a voice, impression share, um, to remain, to remain competitive, uh, competitive with these new entrants coming in. What is the growth team look like? Um, growth marketing performance, and then what is the team for milk drunk? Like the content team structure look like? Oh, that's a really good question. So I joined in September. I was a growth team of one. 
Um, I brought on a head of retention. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. I, I brought on a head of retention because um, at the time I was like, whoa, our targets are so aggressive. We need to keep all these people that we're acquiring. Little did I know, you know, what would, what would happen um, in the next few months. Um, I was planning to bring on someone to own paid acquisition and someone to own organic acquisition. We put the paid role on hold for the time being just because we don't need it. We have a paid, I'm um, sorry, an organic acquisition market um, manager and a content lead. So both of them own our entire organic strategy for both Milk Drunk and um, our main highbobby.com website and third-party content. Um, a large part of Milk Drunk is also branded content. So that entity kind of sits between growth and brand. Um, but the growth team really focuses on SEO, driving the numbers up, and the brand team really focuses on storytelling. So it's a good What was harmony. your experience before joining here? Because, uh, you know, I mean, you were by yourself um, taking on, on this big operation. Did you did you work at growth roles before, um, a diversity between operations? Yeah, I spent a lot of time in agencies. So I had a lot of exposure to growing businesses directly and growing growth teams. Um, previously, I was at Common Thread Collective. We grew from the time I was there five to 15 growth teams. So really building teams was a part of my bread and butter. And then the whole growth playbook from, you know, all all facets of um, the funnel and, and all growth tactics, I had the the luck and pleasure of being exposed to like, you know, paid CRO, retention, SEO, just by nature of the different agencies I've been in and the focuses of those agencies. Um, but yeah, I think if you're an agency person, you're crazy. Like you have 15 bosses, you have like actually probably like 50 bosses, um, but your exposure and the depth of knowledge that you get and seeing so many different businesses is is unparalleled. And and I know I'm doing a little bit of rapid fire here, but um, you you know, did you tap into any of these agencies? Uh, given you know you, you're you're inundated with creative needs, you're one person in the growth team. How do you attack creative? How did you you know did you leverage contractors or some of this paid stuff, or was it just all you guys in house? Yeah. Uh, another great question. That's one of the first things I did is I did a uh, quick audit of where all of our gaps were and I plugged all those gaps with agencies in the beginning while I worked on building the team and replacing those agencies with in-house um, support. So the biggest thing the, the first few months was spent on like building the, the foundational infrastructure for retention, building all the automations, all the things that would produce money while we were sleeping, and then uh, focusing paid acquisition on testing, testing and scaling and producing as much creative as possible. There were a few times where I'm sure the brand marketing team wanted to slap me because of how ridiculous and ugly some of the ad concepts were that came out. But I'm like, I swear the ugly stuff works. 
in the end, it's, it's the UGC that comes from real customers that always does the best. So when we turn back on again, it's, I know exactly how we're going to turn the machine on. It's going to be taking that UGC and creating a production house to, to push it out and continue iterating on it. The, the next question I'd have in, in regards to kind of like some of the stuff we talked about. So we talked about the performance side, how you build a team, um, how you think about growth in this sort of environment. And one thing you touched on, you said when you got in there, you wanted to, the, fir- the first thing you wanted to do was get everything in line in terms of your retention and your operations to make sure that, you know, this business could run and generate um, growth in its sleep, right? So what are some of the things that you did there and what were those foundational things you needed to set up to make sure that you had everything from an operational side um, taken care of? Yeah, it's kind of, I wish I could pat myself on the back a little bit more, but there was so much untapped potential. You know, we were, we were so new that there was so much work that hadn't been done yet. So just setting up the basic automations, you know, onboarding, um, upsell, uh, we worked with, we used a tool called like Disco that did like a post-purchase page upsell and cross-sell. Um, so, so really just, and, and then like testing, uh, welcome pop-ups, um, for list growth. And we worked with, um, CTC's retention team, ComThread Collective's retention team to set up like the framework. And then, you know, I brought in a contractor, a buyer um, for paid media that I know and trust. And I think when you're building a paid team, you can work with an agency if you're not, you know, a growth expert, or you can work with a buyer if you are a growth expert and you can get a lot done, you know, between the two of you. And then it's really the creative production that is the biggest pain for everybody. Wait, I do have a question on that. So you mentioned if you are not a growth expert, you can work with an agency. If you are a growth expert, you can work with a buyer. So is the buyer like literally the person running the ads? Um, And why do you recommend that route if the person doesn't have growth experience versus an agency? Uh, Because if the person doesn't have the experience, they might think, well, the buyer understands all this and they know it. So they can just do it. I prefer that over an agency. So but there seems to be some differences there. Yeah, I think the biggest piece that you can get from an agency, if it's the right agency, if you don't have a strong growth background is forecasting and strategy and how to spend your budget and where to put your budget. And I mean, it's hard to do that if you don't know how to do that. Um, And it's hard to trust a buyer to do a lot of that strategic thinking for your, you know, where you're going to spend your whole budget. Um, I mean, I think even if you work with an agency, you could get bamboozled if the person that's running your strategy, you know, isn't, isn't uh, very strong, but coming from common thread collective, a lot of our, the growth teams focused was forecasting um, how and why to spend budget the way that we spent it. So knowing that having that background being able to forecast and then being able to work with the buyer to um the buyer focusing on more creative strategy testing and hands-on building ads and um managing bu- budgets directly in platform i think it's 
pretty seamless. Got it. And now, um, you know, how, how are you guys also thinking about um, retention and continued organic growth, right? One thing that you mentioned is this is something, this is a brand where there's already a ton of demand for it, right? So how does uh, your retention and organic growth uh, factor into the mix? Yeah, retention, our biggest focus is the actual value of the subscription. I mean, and conversion rate optimization for first subscription order. Because once we can get that first subscription order, the retention curve is so different than a one-time purchaser. So all of our efforts are focused on getting that first subscriber. And now that we're in retail, it's making the subscription more appealing than it is to just go into a retail store and purchase. So we're focusing on like loyalty program, referral incentives, um, like really building a truly unique an easy and seamless referral and loyalty experience. Um, and then for baby formula, it's like graduation, that mo celebrating that moment when someone cancels and making it something that kind of graduates them into an ambassador of the brand. That's like the next piece. And then when it comes to like data and predictive modeling, my dream is to be able to tell someone how much formula they need when they need it and just have them say yes or no um, and take a lot of the decision making out of the subscription because babies needs grow and change with them as they're introduced to solids or as they get bigger. So that would be the next step. Yeah, I think one thing there which is so interesting about your specific product and I know in uh, these sort of conversations, everyone gets really excited about talking about subscription and how important it is to have a subscription business, but you really need to think about how subscription fits into your product and why people are subscribing. And I think the case that for, for you guys is subscription really enhances the product experience because it's way easier to have something that you know your baby's going to need to eat all the time rather than have you having to physically go to the market to pick it up um, or whatever it is. And And then also, like you mentioned, there's a very finite um, amount of time that this experience is going on for. So you're able to, um, you know, know it's not just, oh, I'm going to subscribe into infinity. It's like, no, there's a very concrete amount of time. We know how much the baby is going to eat. Um, he's going to eat this many times a day, this many times a month. This is exactly the amount of product that we can quantify that he'll need over, over that customer life cycle. So I think um, having that is also a, a huge advantage in terms of how you think about bringing people into your subscription program and how you can craft the messaging and the onboarding around it as opposed to a different brand who's thinking about subscription in a totally different way. Totally. And we have like two purchase decisions that need to happen. It's like the parent and then the baby. And so if the baby doesn't, the formula doesn't sit well with the baby, that's where we have the opportunity to release new products. And I think that's the other arm of retention is products that fit the the baby's needs. And what does it look like when, you know, to evangelize one of these customers into becoming an ambassador? That's a good question. We we're talking about the incentives that would make it worthwhile for someone after they're done purchasing. And our goal is to get more referrals and to get more amplification for that per for, from that person. But what we really need to like hone in on is like, what is the incentive for that person? There is something about being a parent and having gone through a major milestone like feeding your baby and then being able to share that experience with others that is like fulfilling and gratifying that creates 
um, a like incentive beyond just like giving someone a pers- like a rev share. So that's what kind of what we're trying to crack is like, how do we get people to have this like self-actualizing, self-fulfilling experience with other parents? That'll that'll be a big unlock. I think that's a really important thing to think about for any brand as they approach loyalty and referral, right? I think naturally people just think, oh, I'm, I'm going to do a referral program. But what you really need to be considering as a brand is like, what value to the customer is that person referring someone else going to give to them, right? Because if the incentive structure isn't there, uh, then they're not going to refer anyone. Um, so really thinking about the why and what your product is. I know, for, for example... Um, you know, the first company that I started seated, we were a restaurant rewards platform. And for us, right, when you were referring someone else, it was almost like you'd refer someone else, but then the reward that you were getting was being split. So like you're almost inset- you're disincentivized from like sharing and splitting it. And and that's a very big thing to think through because you want to incentivize the user to have a better experience when they're when they're sharing. So I think for you guys, for for a lot of brands, it's like, okay, it makes sense because they're going to continue working with the brand. But for you guys, you're like, how do we get someone to refer after they're through their, you know, customer life cycle, if you want to call it? And what are the incentives to keep moving that forward? So I just think for any brands that are like listening and thinking through their incentives and their referral program, it's not just about, oh, let's do a referral program because we need it. But what is the actual incentive to the customer and why should they actually want to refer someone? So which leads me into my next question is, how are you guys actually structured, like physically, like what tools are you using to build out your um, your loyalty programs? And, and how are you guys thinking about that sort of stuff? Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say about referral programs is 98% of brands use the same exact out of the box referral program. And it's painful because it doesn't fit into a user's life and how they actually make referrals. Like no one is going to be like, oh, I have to tell you about this new hair product I use. Let me log onto their site, click on their referral page, type in my email address, then your email address, and then you go open your email and then you click and you buy. Like that is the most unnatural user experience and not how referrals happen. So one thing that if someone's listening, please make this tool or like one thing that we're going to try and figure out how to make ourselves like, how do you fit a referral into a user's life? Um, I mean, like, look at Venmo does it really well. You can just scan their code. But I mean, a lot of these D2C out of the box solutions don't have that built in. So you have to like build it yourself or can you, how do employees get you know, discounts or share discounts with friends or like, oh, use my use my discount code. I have an employee, friends and family discount code. You can't do that because there's like so much fraud that can happen when you share a coupon code. So if someone can figure that out and like get back to me, that would be awesome. In the meantime, I'll like try and figure it out myself. But from a loyalty standpoint, it's we think about it the same. Like, how do we create for the customer and for the user? And what kind of incentives do they actually want? For us, it doesn't make sense to give people like discount incentives. It makes sense to give them like discounts to our partners or um, perks and benefits that they can unlock exclusively because they're a member and for no other reason. Um, Like actual physical experiences. I am a big fan of Sephora's 
loyalty program. It like I will buy anything from Sephora just to get their rewards. Um, but they have like sampling built into their loyalty program. So it's it's really like trying to figure out what is what does the consumer want and what can they only get from you in that one channel. And it can't be points because no one some people care about points, but points are yeah. down. <laughs> It's super interesting because, I mean, there's so many ways to add value in the DTC world. For example, I was thinking earlier as we were talking about the buyer and the agencies and how you mentioned a lot of people can get burned by agencies. I mean, some some companies would be stoked to join a platform just because they have vetted agency partners and referred um, people within a network. I think also the you know, it, it's funny that you mentioned if you if you get an email from a company, you know, hey, Shireen invited you here. Here's hold on. My, my Siri goes off when I say your name. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, you've been invited to this company. Um, click here, sign up. But for Venmo or these other coupon codes, the the user or the customer is the one doing the selling the selling to the person that is being referred and it comes off as like way more authentic the challenge is that you just don't have control or of like when they do that or if they do it and no way of knowing if people are doing it unless you actually see the attribution with the coupon code being used so it's um so you know we like seeing traffic or clicks or, or, or links and then optimize from there. Um, but I, I definitely think you touch on something super important there that um, it's just not an authentic natural experience to get an email or a text um, with super generic text in it. Yeah. And it, and it goes back to the whole like attribution problem, right? And why brand is so important because there's certain things that are just really hard to get proper attribution for when even though those may be the most important things, right? In driving a purchase decision, like even, you know, we were talking about SEO earlier in the episode, like even if you're not ranking number one, even if you're not even getting clicks, right? Like you're still driving awareness if you're ranking on the top results and someone might see your brand and then it might pop up later and then they make a purchase decision because you've built that trust and awareness over time, but you're never gonna get a click attribution or anything like that. And like you said, without, um, you know, a, without someone following a referral link, right, you're not going to get the uh, the attribution that, oh, this was a word of mouth referral, when, which a lot of times those are the strongest ones. So I think just having that discipline to know that you've got two sides to growth, you've got like the performance side, which you're going to be able to get really solid attribution for and the brand side, which as you mentioned, Shireen, is like the long play. And we know like we want people to know that Bobby is the place to come for formula when they need it. And just being able to, you know, respect both of those channels and, and, and do it that way, as opposed to, um, you know, giving up on one just cause you don't have like ironclad attribution for it. Totally. Oh man. If we, if we could, if I could attribute sales to every time someone mentioned our brand on Reddit, like <laughs> that would be amazing. But like, how much do you, I would trust as a consumer and how many consumers trust some random person on Reddit who said that they had a good experience compared to like a blog article that you know everyone is paying to be a part of. <laughs> That's the stuff that if we could if we could pay for that stuff, we would we would. <laughs> do you do performance on Reddit or don't? No, no. No. What about do you guys look at 
you guys keep a close eye there to the conversations that are happening outside in order to create some of the content um, for Milk Drunk or some of the performance content that you guys make? Yeah, actually, social listening and consumer sentiment reporting has become a bigger part of our strategy to the point where every week we're looking at a report and it's being shared with, you know, maybe half of our company to get ideas for how and what we're going to communicate next and what we're going to bring into our strategy. Sometimes we, it's like, oh, okay, that's good to know. We're just going to sit on it. And sometimes it's, let's bring into action and do something tomorrow yeah. about this. Yeah, because a lot of the, you know, typically one would write content based on keyword search volume, but that misses the mark of what's trending at the moment. And by the time that you see the search volume spike like crazy, the keyword difficulty has really increased um, and it, you're not catching that when people need it most that, you know, social tools, um, sorry, uh, blog tools might be telling you there's no search for it. But in fact, is that, you know, they haven't even caught to the fact that this is just something happening in the moment and maybe social media is like a better thing for that type of content how do you guys use your social media we use it in a very good way because we use it the way a person would and we have a lot of our our brand team is phenomenal they have so much content planned but they're also good at just like pivoting and meeting the moment and creating content within a day to basically meet the moment. Um, but yeah, it is, it, it is very like a good marriage between structure and just like organic content production. How did you tackle this operation of, you know, social content, um, the entire social strategy? Um, was this something you started with right at the gate or, you know, this, this came later and how long did it take you to, to, I, I guess, put in place the entire social strategy to the point that, okay, we've got this machine going on, on autopilot. Our social is so much different than everyone else in our industry because we're authentic and you can tell that, you know, we're probably, our business is probably like 90, I don't know, 80% moms. So when you see our social, you can tell it's like moms running the account, creating the content. Um, so it's a, a lot of our social team's work is like what is happening, what is trending right now, and how do we fit that into the calendar? And as we're growing and scaling, we're trying to create more procedure. But I think some of the magic is that there isn't too much procedure, and it's more like um, truly like social organic content uh, we, with Milk Drunk, like with the content that we're producing, where we are um, trying to align all channels in harmony, but so much happens every week that's different than what we had planned that we just kind of, I think we're successful because we just like pivot. Well, Shireen, we wanted to thank you for one coming on, sharing all these different facets about growth at Bobby. It sounds like you guys have not only an amazing product, but um, an amazing team structure in place and being able to have the right infrastructure as you're scaling through such fast growth is is such an important um, facet to, to being able to continue that sustainable growth. So for our listeners who are tuning in and may be curious more about not only Bobby the brand, but maybe like learning more from you, are you... Um, 
Are you on Twitter? Are you on LinkedIn? How can people connect with you uh, as well as Bobby the brand? Yes, connect with me on Twitter uh, at Shireen Aubert and follow along with Bobby. Our, our site is hibobby.com. We're on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, everywhere. Um, reach out to me. Uh, my DMs are open and happy to chat with anyone. Love being on the podcast, guys. This is awesome. Thank you.